Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Are we recording? Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, I'm Jada Boomrod here with Shima Oliai. Yes. This is The Vanishing of Harry Pace, a miniseries on Radio Lab. This is episode two. Quick recap. In the last episode, we started with a family secret. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is crazy. I can't believe this has been kept from us. About a guy named Harry Pace, who it turned out was not an Italian mobster, but rather... African-American. A light-skinned black man from Covington, Georgia, who fell under the tutelage of the great W.E.B. Du Bois. So that it was a good beginning. And created America's first black-owned record label. It said the only records using exclusively Negro voices and musicians. Almost 100 years ago today. So we thought this is going to be a series just about music. But what Harry does next... It's like poof! is on a whole nother level. Like, that is haunting. Trying to sort through what that experience is like psychologically is very hard to do. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Okay, to pick up where we left off. End of Black Swan article, a consolidation. Screenwriter, Core Jefferson. Chicago Defender, April 19th, 1924. White combinations of white businesses are frequent. It does not often occur where there is a combination of a white and a racial business. It is of more than local interest, therefore, to note the recent consolidation of the phonograph record business of the Paramount, a white organization, and the Black Swan. At the end of April 1924, after a very intense two-year run, Harry sells Black Swan to Paramount, a large white record company. He tries to put a good spin on it, but there's no mistake. This was definitely the end. One thing worth saying is, is just this was what happened in every aspect of American life. Whenever blacks found a way to earn money, whites would come in in subcapacity and, and destroy that. This is not unusual. I mean, this what is unusual, though, is the way Harry responds. The way he immediately changes keys. One thing we didn't tell you in episode one is that while Harry was doing all the black swan stuff, he was also the president of an insurance company. On the side. He's got this other job, this other life. This is journalist Paul Slade. He's written an entire book about Harry. He actually got us started on this whole journey. Black Swan's at its height, and yet he still finds the time and the energy to act as chairman of a brand new life insurance company. And this is happening while Ethel's on tour and they're blowing up? Oh my gosh, that's insane. So when Black Swan folds, like right in the middle of its collapse... Harry drove through a merger between two other insurance companies selling to black customers. And that created a massive new firm, which more or less owned the black market for life insurance. Called the Supreme Liberty Life Insurance Company. Scholar Imani Perry. When Lorraine Hansberry writes A Raisin in the Sun, this is in some ways predicated on, the whole play is predicated on that company. Wow. More on that in a second. Supreme Liberty Life was headquartered in Chicago and it was enormous. You can get an idea of the size of it from the fact that he had assets of $1.4 million, and again, this is in 1929 money, and over 1,000 employees. So he just flips industries from music to insurance? Yeah, that's, that's the next step. And that's when Harry moves to Chicago. 
initially this seemed a little out of the blue to us, but pretty much everyone we talked to said, no, 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 this makes total sense. Think about who this guy was. Remember, Pace is a race man. Pace wanted to uplift the race. He's a race man. Scholars Emmett Price, David Sweesman. The same way that Du Bois is a race man. This was his Du Boisian programming kicking in. How do I uplift while I climb? And insurance was actually a natural next step. I mean, there are a couple of things that are pertinent here. And one of them is insurance has this really important social function. Um, Pace's work needs to be understood in that context as doing activism through business. If you look at this time economically, the folks that had accumulated the most wealth had been able to pass it down. So they were mostly white people. Black America had largely been kept below the poverty level, and they didn't have structures to protect their money, to protect themselves. With insurance, this was stability. It was something that they could pass down. So, so for example, Supreme uh, Liberty Life Insurance Company is important because it really is the only way to accumulate wealth upon death. This is what people have to give their families after they die. And then there's also this. When we think about benefiting financially from slavery, slave owners took insurance policies out on their slaves, knowing that the slaves would die and that the death of the slave would be replaced not necessarily with a body, but with a bag of <laughs> coins, right? Money. So insurance wasn't just insurance. It was justice. Yeah, do we, should we skip the Pace's mission statement of Supreme Liberty Life? Totally. I think I just want to get your voice reading it. <laughs> we asked historian Imani Perry if she would read Pace's mission statement. Okay. Pace stated that the first purpose of the Supreme Liberty Life Insurance Company was providing low-cost homes of finest construction using all colored craftsmen. It was very much like Black Swan. The only records using exclusively Negro voices and musicians. Except replace uh, records with homes and musicians with builders. The second objective is for the company to make an investment of funds into the purchasers of these homes. He also said, I actually want to give them money so they can move into those homes. Yeah, so, so this sort of historical context is that this is actually during the Great Migration. So the Great Migration on the most basic level, Professor Charles McKinney, is a mass exodus of African Americans from uh, from the South. From the Deep South. To northern cities like Chicago. Detroit, uh, Flint, Michigan. New York. Newark, New Jersey. Washington. Which is going to become known as the Chocolate City. Before this moment, there's probably fewer than 10 cities that have over 5,000 Black people in them. That number's going to mushroom. So there's this massive movement, right? So in starting this company, Harry clearly saw a need. All these migrants are coming, and there's essentially not enough housing. They just, there's not enough space. So Harry decides to try and solve this space problem. And what was immediately clear to him, to anyone, was that there were tons of neighborhoods with space. Those were the white neighborhoods. But most of Chicago is covered by what are called racially restrictive covenants, which are these sort of private land agreements in neighborhoods that people would enter to preclude African-Americans from moving into them. And these are, uh, these are contracts? They're contracts, yeah. Are they they are legal documents. They're These would be uh, the Neighborhood after. Association coming together to form a contract that someone would have to sign in order to move in. And it would read like this. This is literally a one of those contracts. 
No fence hedge or barrier more than 36 inches in height shall be placed within 30 feet of any street. No fowl or animal other than songbirds, dogs, or cats as household pets. No part of the land hereby conveyed shall ever be used or occupied by or sold, diminished, transferred, conveyed onto, or in trusts for leased or rented, or given to Negroes or any person or persons of Negro blood or extraction, or to any person of the Semitic race, blood, or origin, which racial description shall be deemed to include Armenians, Jews, Hebrews, Persians, and Syrians. Basically, you can't have these kind of people in the neighborhood. And as a, a race man of sorts, as someone who was interested in pursuing civil rights for African Americans, Harry Pace decided it's time to do something. 1930, he starts studying for his law degree, doing it in his spare time. He's running this massive insurance company. He still finds time to work four nights a week to do all his law studies. And he graduates from Chicago Law School in 1933. July 8th, 1933, Chicago Defender. Surprising his friends, many of whom had no previous inkling of his study, Harry Pace, well-known insurance executive, appeared in the graduating class of the Chicago Law School. And just the sheer amount of energy that he had, you know, just one of his lives would have exhausted me. At this point, he's got a wife, Ethelyn, a kid, Harry Jr., who's 15. He's managing a company of 1,000 employees. He's gone to law school in his spare time. The next thing he does in his off hours, I guess, is... He starts looking for homes that are for sale in white neighborhoods. He eventually zeroes in on a neighborhood called Woodlawn. Like if you go to Woodlawn, now Woodlawn is like 100% black now, right? At the time, it was completely white. So Harry sets his sights on this neighborhood. Harry managed to find one of the white guys who had been involved in running the, the owner's association at Woodlawn a guy called James Burke. James Burke was a cop. Now, James Burke, I believe he'd actually been involved in drawing up the original uh, restricted covenants. That document? No Negroes or any person or persons of Negro blood or extraction. He was one of the guys who wrote it. He defended it in court. He won. But um, the reason that Harry got in touch with him is that somewhere along the way, this man... He'd fallen out with the other members of the property association and he wanted to get back at them. Do you know what the falling out was? I don't, I'm afraid. I don't know what it was all about. But he was an officer for that neighborhood. Yeah, but he had this massive falling out. And everything he does from that point onwards seems to be driven by spite. We think it was a dispute with his ex-wife, who was still on the Neighborhood Association. We're not sure, but for whatever reason, he was so upset with them that he vowed to put a black family on every single block in Woodlawn, just to spite them. And somehow Harry finds this guy and basically he's like, you and me, we have the same goal. Integrate the neighborhood. Yes. And he unites with this racist cop. <laughs> this is, I just have so much respect. I mean, this is, I don't know. Harry just got done. You know, you know, a racist white cop is going to be helpful when you're trying to sort of take on the law. <laughs> he probably had to swallow his pride. I, I can't imagine what the conversations were like between those two people. But, you yeah. know, it was probably uh, <laughs> amazing. Now, we don't quite know how they met, but uh, we do know from Harry's testimony in court that, that he was working with James Burke in this. This was problem solving at its best. Harry tells 
James Burke to find him a house that is for sale in that white neighborhood. James Burke does. Harry then, in a very kind of clandestine, complicated series of transactions, arranges for the house to be sold to a black man in direct violation of the racially restrictive covenant. And the name of that man? Carl Augustus Hansberry, a real estate mogul of sorts for black Chicago. And the father of Lorraine Hansberry. The future playwright. The first black playwright to win the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for the best play of the year. Now, when Emmett Price talks about the six degrees of Harry. Yeah, I mean, Harry Pace touches people who... (laughs) don't even realize that they were touched by Harry Pace. Well, Harry just shows up everywhere. Everywhere. Literally, everywhere. This is what he's talking about. Everybody's connected. Now, Lorraine Hansberry was young. She was eight at the time. When Harry sold her dad the house that they would move into, she would ultimately write a play about the whole experience called Raisin in the Sun. I mean, a Raisin in the Sun is, in many ways, kind of the door opening. It was the black swan moment of the theater. The watershed. It was like Lorraine was opening... A new chapter in a theater that included Black people. In in the way that Black Swan Records was a watershed. If you've seen the play, you'll recall that it's about a Black family moving into a white neighborhood or about to move in. Right before they do, there is a white man who shows up. What can we do for you, Mr. Lennon? (laughs) Well, I'm from the Clyburn Park Improvement Association. At the Younger's apartment. We had it brought to our attention at the last meeting that that you people bought a piece of residential property. And he tries um, rather delicately to explain that (laughs) they do not want the younger family to move into their neighborhood. For the happiness of all concerned, our association is prepared to to buy the house from you at a financial gain to your family. And and offers them money to prevent them from moving in. And ultimately the family- We have all thought- Refuses- About your offer. That insult. And we've decided. To move into our house. It's it's sort of dramatic rendering of what these restrictive covenants were actually doing. The play ends with uh, this family about to move into a white neighborhood. It ends with a point of possibility. What will happen? In real life, they did move in. Harry Pace sold the house to her dad, convinced him and his family to move into that white neighborhood. And when they did, it was much worse than anything she wrote about in that play. They move in and they are met with mob violence. Lorraine Hansberry wrote about this in a public letter. That fight required that our family occupy the disputed property in a hellishly hostile white neighborhood in which literally howling mobs surrounded our house. She says they threw stones in through the windows. One of their missiles almost took the life of the then eight-year-old signer of this letter. My memories of this correct way of fighting white supremacy in America include being spat at, cursed, and pummeled in the daily trek to and from school. I also remember my desperate and courageous mother patrolling our household all night with a loaded German Luger, doggedly guarding her four children. This was all part of Harry's plan. Maybe not the mob violence, but he wanted to provoke the neighborhood. He knows he's going to trip a lawsuit. That's the whole point. Journalist and legal expert Jamie Floyd. He wants to trip a lawsuit. It's just like the woman who started Roe versus Wade. When you're bringing a test case, you're bringing a test case. You know what you're doing. 
So, um, anyway. May 1937. So now Harry is working with Carl Hansbury and the Hansbury family. Hansbury moves in. And at that point, Woodlawn's white residents, the Property Owners Association, they realise they've been tricked. They sue. Arguing that... This purchase violated their restrictive covenants. That's exactly what Harry wanted, so he countersues and... They end up in court. First of all, it's it's heard by a circuit court, and then it goes to the Illinois Supreme Court, and those first two stages go against the Hansberries. Against Harry. They know going in that precedent is uh, against them. Jamie says just 15 years earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court had found, as a constitutional matter that restrictive covenants were constitutional, that Mm. it was okay for people, white people, to say, we don't want you in our neighborhood. On what grounds? It was part of your property right. Mm. It was Uh. part of your property right to make a decision about who will inherit this land and under what condition. So from the plaintiff's standpoint, that's the other side, all they felt they needed to do was to prove that Harry and Carl Hansberry were conspiring to break the law. And so at a certain point, the other side calls Harry himself to the stand. Oh, maybe the chat would be good. Um. For this part, we got an assist once again from John McWhorter, who played piano for us in the last episode. He comes in here as a linguist, which is his day job. And he plays Harry. Pace would have talked kind of like me. That's interesting. I'm not even going to do a voice. That's just me. Okay, yeah, I can do that. And Jamie, do you want to be the lawyer for the other side? Yeah, sadly, yes. I think that makes sense. (laughs) Here we go. Ready? Yeah. Pardon me for asking you this question, Mr. Pace. You are a Negro, are you not? Well, that would be a conclusion on my part. I am commonly known as a colored person. You can form your own conclusion, please. I mean, you admit that you are. I say I am commonly known as a colored man and prefer to be known as such. Are all the other officers of your company also colored people? Yes. All of them? Yes. All right. John, you are great. I felt Harry. that. You're the best Harry so far. I've, I am that man. <laughs> you, <laughs> you've auditioned him. well for Harry. <laughs> <A> colored man. <laughs> I am, I, I'm him. <laughs> there are many ways to read this exchange. I mean, one could be that the lawyer, Churin, is unnerved by Harry's pale complexion, and he just wants to establish for the jury, that guy is a black man. Don't be fooled, all-white jury. That is a black man causing trouble. Just trying to get the jury to be so angry with these black folk for stepping out of their, you know, rightful place down at the bottom of the ladder. (laughs) But then he said, it's a little weird. He says, you are a Negro, are you not? And then Harry replies, that would be a conclusion on my part. Uh, That phrase throws me. Like, what are you you hearing there? That's an indication of what he was going to do later. He's letting on that there's a part of him that thinks, why do I have to accept that particular balkanized category? I wondered if he was sort of ahead of his time a little bit. Obviously, there's legal strategy happening also because he had to be prepared to testify, right? But could he also have been saying, listen, this race thing is crazy? That is what he meant. Yeah, he was slipping that in. I think Pace thought, maybe it's time for us to start letting this go. Isn't that about two and a half generations past slavery? Isn't that natural? To start thinking, maybe it's time to start letting this go, given that we're all different colors and I like Mozart just as much as they do. What is this white, colored, Negro thing? I can see him thinking that. Getting back to the case. Harry and his team lose twice in the lower courts. 
They appealed twice, and eventually, in 1937... The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. They arrive at the Supreme Court. Oh, yay, oh, yay. You know, of course they'd love the courts to say, well, it's just unconstitutional. You can't segregate this neighborhood. That's just against, that's against our principles in America. But, you know, the year is 19, I don't know, 38. I mean, come on, the military's not even integrated. The military, the first major institution in our country, is years away from integration. This is what they're up against. So Jamie says Harry and his team deploy kind of an ingenious strategy. Strategically, they decide, let's just look at the paperwork. Let's look at the paperwork. Mm. Like, okay, let's look at these contracts on their terms, on the terms that the Neighborhood Association set out. According to their rules, these are the rules the association made for themselves. They needed to have 95% of the people who live there signing the thing. Otherwise, the contracts weren't valid. They needed to have close to 100% of the landowners to sign it. But then Harry and his team go out and they check every single lease in the neighborhood And what they discover is that the Neighborhood Association, they had only gotten 54% of the people in the neighborhood to support the restrictive covenant. Without the remaining 46% or so, the thing wasn't a good document. So it was like a technicality? Right, right. But when you bring a test case in the courts, the first thing you want to do is what? Win. And uh, that's what happens. can be occupied by African-Americans and the neighborhood where it is is then opened up for Black people. The decision opened 500 new properties to Black residents. Harry basically transformed Chicago's South Side in an instant. I mean, this dude's... Good God, why why don't we have like three movies about this dude, I, right? I, know. I mean, you know, hello, Ava DuVernay, right? I mean, you know, record owner, lawyer, good God. I mean, this dude is like, he is like the vocational MacGyver. Right? He's all over the place. And then... Things get really confusing. Like, if you ask yourself, as we have a million times in this project, why don't we know about Harry? There are a lot of reasons for that. You know, not a ton of documentation. We don't have his voice. It was a long time ago. And then there is the tricky business of what was happening in his life at the time he was testifying. That's after the break. This is Angela Babiars from San Jose, California. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This is The Vanishing of Harry Pace, a miniseries on Radiolab. I'm Jad Abumrad here with... I'm Shimo Liai. There you are. Okay, so one of the tricky things about Harry is boiling down his life to just one story. Like... There seem to be so many stories happening all at once. 
For example, if we were to split screen the story we just told you, on one screen, you would have a great Supreme Court victory about a race man who desegregates a huge chunk of Chicago. On the other side, very different. So certainly some... According to Paul Slade, if you look at the census records for him and his family... In 1930... This was before the case. He entered the whole family as being Negro. N-E-G was the notation on the form. Um, And in 1940... The year of the Supreme Court decision... He entered them all as being W for white. Huh. But at what? Okay, so... Mm. So at some point between 1930 and 1940, something changed. We don't know exactly what. We looked at the census records, and Paul's right. Between the time Harry testified in Hansbury v. Lee and the time the outcome was announced, he reclassified himself and his family from black to white. And apparently, even before Carl Hansbury had moved his family into, into that Woodlawn white neighborhood, Harry had already snuck his family in. So it's, it's complicated. Uh, just your professional opinion. Do you think he moved into that neighborhood to test the bounds of covenants to set up Hansberry v. Lee? My, my instinct is that it was probably a dry run. I think he, would, he was probably already thinking it was a rehearsal, I think, for, for Hansberry v. Lee. And he wanted to see if this idea would work. That's my feeling. Um, so 1937, this case starts, right? Mm-hmm. 1930... Harry's family's listed in the census Mm. as Negro. Right. 1940, as this case is Mm -hmm. being concluded, Harry and his family is now listed as white. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? Well, honestly, this, it's not all that uncommon that that would happen. And it can be for a couple of different reasons. Census takers list whatever they want. So they look at people and are making decisions about their race without asking them at times. We have to remember, we didn't start filling out our own census forms until 1960. It's a modern phenomenon. Harry Pace never got to choose for himself. And think about it, if the enumerator, that's what they used to call the census takers, if they walked into a segregated white neighborhood and they see a person standing on the lawn watering his lawn, They're just going to make the assumption that person is white. So maybe that's what happened. Maybe he was there watering his lawn, Harry Jr., playing with a ball, little Josephine tagging along, Ethelyn, his wife. And maybe the enumerator saw all this, just assumed, well, everybody else in this neighborhood is white by law. So these people must be white. So we don't know what happened, Jad. We don't know what transpired. Uh, Did the enumerator simply make that assumption and mark down W? Or was there a conversation about race in which Harry Pace misrepresented? We just don't know. Whatever the case, if it were a W, maybe that suited him to be classified that way since his goal was at some point to out himself and bring a case. I mean, it's even possible that James Burke, that racist cop, only worked with Harry in the beginning because he thought he was white. James didn't understand who he was talking to. I don't know. Seemed plausible. But then? Mr. Pace, would you consider him to be your mentor? He definitely was my mentor. He would have to go to the bank and he would let me ride with him. Uh, When I got driver's license, I would drive him. We found a video interview done with a guy named John Johnson, who was the founder of Ebony and Jet magazines. 
In the interview, he tells the story of meeting Harry Pace on June 4th, 1937. This would have been right in the middle of the Hansberry v. Lee case. He just graduated high school and he'd been selected to go to some kind of event uh, honoring black high school graduates. We were all went to some place where each there was selected one person from each school to be honored. And uh, Mr. Pace was the main speaker. He gave a talk called The Negro's Contribution to American Life. And he talked about how black history has not been recognized, how we fixate too much only on white men and what they've accomplished. And to quote, This is actually Harry's grandson, Peter, reading from the speech. There were Negroes who came to America with Columbus, who crossed the country and saw the placid Pacific with Balboa, who went in the wilds of Mexico and Central America with Cortez, who searched for the fountain of youth with Ponce de Leon. All of these people, he argued, they need to be seen. And so uh, after it was over, having practiced public speaking and not being shy anymore, I went up and said how, what a great speech he had made and, and how inspired we were by the speech. And he said, well, you had a great high school record. What are you going to do? I said, well, I'd, I'd like to go to college. I have a, a small scholarship, but I just cannot see my mother scrubbing floors and washing dishes in order for me to go to college. He said, have you ever thought about going to college part-time and working part-time? I said, I've thought about it, but I don't have a job. He said, well, maybe we can find you one. Come to see me on the first work day of September, and I'll find some kind of job for you. And uh, he really didn't have a job for me. <laughs> but he had a desk outside his office, and he sat me at the desk, and so I would run errands and do whatever he wanted me to do. And he would talk to me about business and about his life and... I, I never knew that blacks could do what they were doing. At this point, uh, the interviewer for this uh, oral history, it was done for the Visionary Project, jumps in with a question about Harry's complexion. Mr. Pace was very fair-skinned, too, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he? as a matter of fact. I've seen pictures was, of him. He was very fair-skinned, uh, but he identified completely with blacks until he had a daughter and a son. This would be Harry Jr. and Josephine, now teenagers. Who went to the University of of, of uh, Wisconsin, and they fell in love with, with white boys and girls, and they wanted to get married, and the time came for them to meet the, the parents. So naturally, they didn't want to meet a black person. So when um, Christmas came and it was time for the parents to meet him, he didn't take any black newspapers or magazines home with him, which was a godsend for me because he gave me the job of reading black newspapers and giving him a digest of what was happening in the black community oh. each week. I did that so he could talk intelligently to the people who were coming in and out of his office. That's how I got the idea for Negro Digest. So he was Basically, he says Harry was temporarily pretending to be white for his kids. All the while, John Johnson would secretly smuggle in these black publications, which he says was what led him to start Ebony and Jet making him one of the 400 richest men in America. Actually, he was the first black man to make that list. So he was more than a mentor. So, um... Um, at this point, the interview goes in other directions, but Johnson continues the story in his autobiography. David Sweesman told us that after Harry decided to move his family into that neighborhood. At that point, Johnson recounts there's this threat 
by his employees at Supreme Liberty Life who realize that he's passing because otherwise he wouldn't be able to live in this uh, white neighborhood. And they, uh, they, they threatened to, to, to basically out him. Apparently some of the younger employees had found out that he was potentially passing and they were horrified. He was the president of the largest Black-owned insurance company in America, after all. So they threatened to march into his neighborhood and picket his house. And Johnson writes, from that day until his death, a year later, he was a changed man. More cautious, more withdrawn, more secretive. From that day forward, apparently, he just faded away from the Black limelight and decided to become white once and for all. I think that decision, which he couldn't have made lightly, must have been scary for him. I just didn't know that Harry, honestly, like, I did not know that there were black race people. Writer Kiese Lehman? Who passed as white, and I did not know the damage that it could cause. I just didn't know. And then you're shown the consequences of like this neon catastrophe of race in this country. And you're just like, oh, like, of course that could happen. But I never, ever imagined it. Everyone we talked to had a different take about this moment in Harry's life. Historian Elliot Hurwitz. I mean, the thing is, the way in which he retreats into his house and leaves black life and hides is really uh, very unfortunate. To Elliot, it's just a betrayal of everything that Harry stood for. It's almost a, it's almost a Halloween story, you know. It's, uh, maybe it's the time of year, but I, I see him as kind of a, an unquiet spirit, you know, who can never rest. A ghost. Wandering the earth. You know, this is when, when we talk about stuff like this in my class, Historian Charles McKinney. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, and I'm pushing back on my students. They're like, oh, you know, this is a betrayal. This is a betrayal. And I ask them, I'm like, okay, so basically after 60 years of, of, of battle, yeah. right, you know, how many more years did he owe you, right, to engage in this, to engage in this battle, right? How many more years did he owe? Yeah, I do think that some of these figures, and I think Harry Pace is one of them, Sometimes in our judgment of them as historic figures, we're, we forget the risk and the cost. Historian Imani Perry. And I just keep thinking about the threat of that picket. Professor Eve Dunbar. For his family and what that might mean in the neighborhood that he lives in. Like, what would they do if they found out that a Black person was among them? They would make his life hell but what would that hell look like? Would they try to burn his house down? What, you know, what would white people do if they found out a Black family was living next door? Here's what we know, um, or think we know. Just a couple months after the threat of that picket, Harry is shoveling snow outside his home, and he falls over, has a stroke, is bedridden for six months, and then he dies. Let's do this. Let's do it. A day later, his body ends up in the Bronx. All right, so this must be it, right? 78 years later, so do we. Hi. 
Hi. We met up with the archivist of Woodlawn Cemetery, Susan Olson. Very good. Yeah. Oh, you've got, okay, cool. When we told her uh, we were interested in Harry Pace, she was like, oh, W.C. Handy's collaborator, that guy? I worked for the Memphis Pink Palace Museum, and my first job was dusting W.C. Handy's trumpet. Oh, my God. But then when you guys call, I never really bothered with Pace. She walked into a side room, and a minute or two later, she came back with a stack of paper. What, is it, what do you have there in your yeah. hand? These are the internment orders. What yeah. does internment mean? Burial. Okay. We use fancy words to think that it softens the blow. (laughs) No, you got a dead relative. You're digging a hole, but we call it internment. (laughs) Okay, so what we know is that with Harry Pace, uh, we know that Ethelind is the the owner of the lot. Is it Ethelind? That's his wife. Ethelind Pace. That C.S. Hall is the funeral director. That the hearse is scheduled to arrive at 12 o'clock. What's the deed number? Is it 32? Can you see it? You're talking to two old people. What's the deed number? It's 32826. That's such a high number. I'm sure it was bought. The story that we quickly assembled is that Harry dies on July 19th, 1943. The next day, Ethland is on a plane from Chicago to New York with the body. She comes to New York. She buys the space and she buries them the next day. But it sounds I don't like, even know if he had a New York City funeral. Seems like there was no funeral, no ceremony, nobody present except for her. We visited Harry's grave. My very excellent prescription sunglasses. Uh, with Jamie Floyd on the 100th anniversary of him starting Black Swan Records. And predictably... So this is our Buddhist to our right. See, it's just going to be one piece of grass. So Don't you think this is our Buddhist? There should be a Gertrude Ederly and McGlynn Memorial. We'll make it clear. We couldn't find him. Come on, Harry, I know you're here. Where are you, Harry? It took us an hour. Come on, Harry. Harry Pace. <laughs> Jeez, Louise, Harry. You're hard to find. Yeah, it really is the vanishing of Harry Pace now. Oh, my God. Surprisingly hard to find. Because it just looks like every <laughs> single grave. Stay. It's so modest. Which is, hmm, if you want anonymity, I guess that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's a simple gravestone, but waist high, uh, three rows back from one of the roads in a far corner of the cemetery. Nothing really special about it. Nothing on the grave that would let you know he did anything with his life. It just says P-A-C-E in Art Deco font. And it's nicely understated. We knocked on his door. We almost wanted to be like, Harry, give us a sign. Tell us where the journals are buried or give us some insight. This section that we're in, this was a white section? Mixed. Right? Was your spirit broken? Did you feel betrayed? Like, what happened with your family? Did you give up? Here, why isn't he up there? What's he even doing here? Yeah, I know. And there's just no information to answer these questions. After such a full life, the end seems so abrupt and so... I don't know. Well, we all end up dead in the ground alone. Ultimately, we're all alone. We're all alone. I guess we should just wish him happy 100th. Happy 100th anniversary, Harry. After Harry Pace died, 
his wife Ethlyn, and his kids Harry Jr. and Josephine, who were teenagers at that point, they seemed to have made a pact. To completely bury his story. His story of activism, the story of Black Swan. They just tried to erase it. The only way we can really explain that is that they must have been really scared. There certainly would have been backlash from white people after Hansberry v. Lee. There was the threat of that picket. They must have felt pressure from all sides and just wanted to make his story disappear for their own safety. I don't know. Maybe that's too generous an interpretation. What we know is that his wife and kids packed up and then sold a lot of his things and then proceeded to never talk about his past. Not to family, not to friends, no one. Actually, it was beyond that. They lied to their children about it. Somehow the notion was presented that Pace was an anglicization of Pace. 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 (laughs) Italian name. Cool. You know, we grew up thinking maybe we're Italian. In just one generation, the entire family was cut off from the real story. They lived with zero idea that they could be anything other than white. But like all lies or half-truths, there's leakage. Eventually, the truth does leak out a little bit. Way back in the days when I was starting to play music, I was um, practicing in my little house. For some reason, I looked down at my skin, and it was like a kind of thing. All of a sudden, I'm looking at it, and I think, I was looking at, 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 a, at a black person. next episode, The Ghost of Harry revisits the modern-day paces. That's next week on The Vanishing of Harry Pace. The Vanishing of Harry Pace was created by Jad Abumrad and Shima Oliai and is presented as a collaboration between Awesome Audio, Radio Lab, and Radio Diaries. The series is based on the book Black Swan Blues, The Hard Rise and Brutal Fall of America's First Black-Owned Record Label by Paul Slade, who helped us out a ton with research as well. Our editorial advisors are Kiesi Lehman, Imani Perry, Cord Jefferson, and Terrence McKnight. Jamie Floyd is our consulting producer. Our fact checker is Natalie Mead. Series artwork was created by Katya Herrera. Special thanks to Nellie Gillis, Ben Shapiro, Deborah George, and Joe Richman. Episode three arrives in just a few days. Okay. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Radio Lab was created by Jed Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Kusick, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasambandam, Matt Kielty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliayi, Sarah Sandbach, Karine Leong, and Candace Wong. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly and Emily Krieger.